Hey, before we dive in to the interview, I want to remind you that the submission deadline for issue three of the audio magazine, well, it's been extended to December 31st. The theme is Heroes. Do, do with that what you will. Essays must be no more than 2,000 words. Bear in mind it's an audio essay, so pay attention to how the words roll out of your mouth. Email submissions with heroes in the subject line to creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com. I've got a few more. Got a couple. I got, got a couple. I got three. I, I'd really like ten. That'd, that'd be, that's a good number to select from. Or more. Anyway, pay writers to that fat burrito money. So, you dig it? Do it. All right? Do it. What are you, what, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? My dad used to kid that poetry was just one letter away from poverty. Um, <laughs> and so um, I, uh, I guess I never really thought about it like as a, a profession, a thing. And I was always amused, uh, especially, I mean, there are very few people in the U.S. who introduce themselves as, well, I'm a poet. Because almost nobody who's a poet makes a living from poetry. You know, it's a, it's, it's a very rare bird. Oh, hey, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? At CNF Pod on Twitter, at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram, at Brendan O'Mara on Twitter, at Brendan O'Mara on Instagram. Ew. Achi Obejas is here to talk about her poetry collection, Boomerang, Boomerang, Poetry, Poesia. It's published by Beacon Press. I know what you're thinking. Brendan, why are you massacring such a beautiful Latin language? It's because Achi's poetry is English going out and Spanish coming back. Half in Spanish, half in English. Like it's like a, oh man, what is what is it? Uh, what's the thing that goes out and back? Oh, the that kid you wish would leave the nest, but he just keeps coming back. What a treat! And Achi was nice enough to read two poems, um, "Heroes in Exile" and "Dancing in Paradise." <laughs> "Dancing in Paradise" in English and Spanish. I've got them spliced into the interview, so you'll you'll hear me. Have a little aside, if you will, to introduce them. Uh, partway through the conversation, Heroes in Exile will be the first one. Later in the interview, towards the very end, Dancing in Paradise. Awesome stuff. Support for the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is brought to you by West Virginia Wesleyan College's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing. Now in its 10th year, this affordable program boasts a low student-to-faculty ratio and a strong sense of community. Recent CNF faculty have been... Brandon Billings Noble, Jeremy Jones, and Sarah Einstein. There's also poetry and fiction tracks with Ashley Bryant Phillips and Jacinda Townsend and Diane Gilliam and Savannah Sippel holding down the fort. No matter your discipline, if you're looking to up your craft or maybe learn a new one, consider West Virginia Wesleyan right in the heart of Appalachia. Go to mfa.wvwc.ed. You for more information and dates of enrollment. Well, Achi and I talk about the writing you do in private that is more or less less pressured, 
less pressure to publish, the stuff you kind of do for fun, how the personal can become political, her role as a translator, and how that the art of translation works, English to Spanish and vice versa, and how her job writing synopses for Netflix helps her artistic writing. This is a fun conversation. I only wish we had more time. Oh, and one more thing. Saturday, November 13th, 7 p.m. Eastern. Tomorrow, if you're listening to this on CNF Friday, I'll be interviewing debut author Ricky Tucker about his new book, and the category is, as part of a CNF Pod Live event for the nonfiction sessions put on by uh, my MFA alma mater, Goucher College. It's a virtual conference. Great stuff. Tickets are like 20 bucks, and there's going to be a few great items on the docket. There's a conversation taking place with Brian Broom. I mean, he was on this podcast when his book, Punch Me Up to the Gods, came out. My favorite memoir of the year. So he'll be there. Uh, you can also go back and listen to our conversation. It was pretty, pretty toe-tapping good time. I am want to say toe-tapping. But yes, if you want to be in the audience for a CNF Pod Live event, warts and all, the Eventbrite link will be in the show notes and across my various social media accounts, notably at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Insta and at CNF Pod on Twitter. Want to give a shout out to Kevin and Melissa, new patrons over at patreon.com slash CNF Pod. Very exciting. Happy to have you aboard. Means the world to have newbies come on board. And of course, the Legion of CNF patrons who have been here from the beginning, like Suzanne Biro. She and I had a nice CNF and happy hour this past Wednesday on Zoom. It's part of my newsletter. I give away an exclusive code to everybody on the newsletter list. First of the month, no spam, can't beat it. You can get that at brendanomera.com. Hey, hey. Suzanne was the only one who showed up this week, and uh, we had a lovely time talking shop. It's good stuff, good times. Just should have been there. All right. You've been so patient. So here's your reward. Achi Obeyas. Now, now in terms of telling, telling a story... There are any number of ways to go about you know, telling true stories, whether it be straight memoir or linked essays, or in this case, so many of the vignettes and the stories, your story you tell are through through poem and prose poem in English and Spanish. So, you know, in your in your head, what was the, the calculus to telling the story you wanted to tell that you do so wonderfully in Boomerang? Um, you know, Boomerang, it was a bit of an accident. Um I have been writing poetry almost my entire life, but I never thought about publishing. I was busy working on prose and, and really focused on prose. Um, and so poetry was this very private thing that I did for myself. Poetry is also where I go to every single day. I, um, I read poetry every day. This book really happened because a friend of mine named Lawrence Schimmel, who's uh, an author and an editor, uh, he, when I lived in Chicago, he used to come and stay with me for a week or so every year. He'd usually have a conference somewhere in the city or in Madison or something like that. And every year he would ask to um, to read some of my poetry. 
And finally, one year he said, you know, you, you really have enough for a book and I would love to put together a chapbook. And I actually handed him a bunch of uh, <laughs> spiral notebooks, <laughs> handwritten spiral notebooks and said, all yours, bud. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, he put together a little chapbook called um, This Is What Happened in Our Other Life. And to my shock and amazement, the, the chapbook got a terrific response, uh, both critically and in terms of sales. It, it became his press's uh, bestseller, and it wound up on the Poetry Foundation bestselling list, which was really like a riot. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then suddenly I had to sort of take myself seriously as a poet. One of the advantages, I guess, in putting together this book and waiting so long to put together this book is that I had a lot of material and I could really look over what I had and sort of come up with a, a, a real sort of curatorial approach um, to it uh, in a way that maybe years before I, I wouldn't have uh, been able to pull off. But I wanted to talk about the personal and how it leads us to the political and how the political is also very personal, um, how we sort of negotiate and vacillate between those two things that overlap, but we tend to think of as sort of extremes. I'm interested in my personal life and in my public life in repairing the world, helping to repair the world, obviously an impossible task. One that I think we all have some responsibility towards and you know, sometimes it's just about marching and moving your body in a particular way. And sometimes it's about being very responsible as a parent or a partner or something like that. I was thinking in a kind of a inward to outward direction and trying to slate the stories and the anecdotes and the emotions accordingly. In what ways are you on a day-to-day -day basis and maybe even year to year uh, trying to, to fix the world, as you say, in, in, in the way that you can? Well, I mean, I have, you know, I, certain issues that are closer to me than, than others. Um, Cuba is a very big topic for me. Um, I was born in Cuba. My parents um, brought us out of Cuba when I was six and a half years old, but it was uh, that exile that they chose, that they opted for, was also something that very much uh, derailed, affected, perhaps even to some extent destroyed their lives. Mm. And, um, you know, they, they weren't alone in that. And I, I've been back to Cuba many times. I lived in Cuba for a while when I was in my uh, 40s. You know, I've gone through phases where, you know, I'm very much in love with it. And then, of course, it gets a little bit diabolical and then I'm not in love with it. You know, right now, Cuba's going through a terrible period. The The current president is uh, was not elected, was chosen by a very minuscule group of people. His first act as president was to sign a law that forbade independent art making hmm. uh, and free expression. There have been protests on the island for the first time ever since the 1959 revolution that have been spontaneous and really propelled by young people. And, you know, from where I sit in the San Francisco Bay area, it doesn't seem like there might be much to do, but 
some friends of mine and I got together and we've put together for this coming Monday, a 24 hour marathon of uh, poetry and art um, live and on tape that will be run in concordance with protests that are currently planned in Cuba. So that's like a, a small thing, but I think we do activism in, in that kind of public way. And we also do activism in very sort of private ways. You know, I have two children. They're both boys. I, I want them to grow up to be men who are responsible and who are in the world for good. So I end up doing a lot of role modeling, even though I'm not a man, but also trying to, you know, make sure that, you know, we do some good, you know, we, we, you know, we together contribute to the food banks. We, you know, pass out, you know, uh, bags of goodies, you know, like, uh, you know, wet wipes, whatever to, you know, homeless people so that they get this idea that they are of a certain privilege and that they have some responsibility with that privilege and that they are lucky little bastards um, <laughs> and uh, they need to spread that luck around a little bit. So, I mean, everybody does what they can in their way. Not everything is accessible to everyone in the same way. So we do what we can. And, you know, and issues also vary. You know, I, at one point I, I in, when I lived in Chicago and I was single and younger, I was very much involved with the, the human rights ordinance and helping pass that bit of legislation, you know, I, but I didn't lift a finger towards marriage equality because I was busy doing other stuff, you know. So, you know, we, we pick and choose what we can and what we feel strongly about. What did it mean for you to return to Cuba, maybe the first time or even subsequent times? Like, what has that meant to you as someone native to Cuba? Well, the first time it was a real stunner. See, you have to understand, you know, exile is so different from mm. immigration because with exile, you're cut off. You don't go back. And mm -hmm. so my parents were, you know, when they talked about Cuba, it was the magical land of Cuba. And um, I, have, I have a friend who always kidded about how when his parents talked about Cuba, it was always sunnier in Cuba, pre-revolution <laughs> than post-revolution. And, you know, it just, it was true. It was just this, um, this sort of, this land of myth. And they were very attached, I think, to their myth. They were the, 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 they had the key to what Cuba was for us. And when I went to Cuba, it was actually very unsettling for them because suddenly I was going to experience it for myself. And in experiencing it for myself, I might come back and ask questions and some of those questions might be uncomfortable. And in fact, that was precisely what happened. I was stunned, for example, by how much blacker Cuba is than the impression that had been given to me as a kid. You know, I had no idea Cuba was an African diaspora country. I knew that there were plenty of black people in Cuba and that a lot of our culture came from Afro-Cubans and that we were very happy and proud of that. But I did not understand just how very black Cuba is and how much Cuba owes to uh, black people, black culture, the African diaspora, until I literally got off the plane and looked around and I don't think I saw a white person for like the first 40 minutes I was in Cuba. And that continued to be true throughout my time there. That was a great shock. Um, the other thing that I think was um, really 
sort of curious to me was how I was treated. I think, I mean, my parents were convinced that I would be treated with a certain amount of suspicion by virtue of being from uh, the U.S. But in fact, everyone sort of absolved me of the sin of leaving because I didn't make the decision. I, I would get people who would publicly say things like, uh, well, you had nothing to do with it. Your parents kidnapped you as if one's parents could kidnap you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then that very same, very radical person might lean down and whisper in my ear, you know, not 20 minutes later and say, you should thank your parents for taking you out of here. So the public private split that exists in Cuban society was something that was very new to me that I had no real sense of until I got there and saw it play out over and over and over and over again, um, where people would take these very public positions and then privately say very different things. I remember I had, um, I had dinner with some cousins. They were pretty melodramatic about their almost everything they talked about. But one of the things that really struck me was that I had noticed a, a framed photograph of uh, my cousin's husband in her apartment. And he was at one of the rallies, one of the big pro-government rallies. And um, I, I asked him something about it. It was very benign what I asked. And his response was that they force you to do that, that, you know, you, you're, there's a tremendous amount of pressure that at work, you know, buses come and take you to the rally and that, you know, you only get lunch if you go. And, um, and, uh, and then of course he, he rattled off a bunch of, of criticisms to, about the government. Um, and I, I was and, and the whole time he's talking to me, we're at this restaurant, he's looking around and making sure that nobody can hear him. It, this became, you know, very par. I got very used to it. I also got very used to the idea that that foreigners were of incredible import in Cuba and that Cubans were willing to to bend uh, for uh, foreigners in a way that was uh, completely uh, unheard of, you know. Um, I remember one time we were, we were in a religious procession. For me, it was a, I'm Jewish, I'm not a Christian, but I was very curious about the, the spectacle of the event and uh, these friends of mine, they're, you know, Cuban friends from Cuba. We, um, you know, we, we had been in this procession for hours and we we're going through a residential neighborhood and uh, everybody's dying to go to the bathroom. And of course, none of the people who live around there are going to let, you know, these hundreds of people and they're going to let one person go to the bathroom that they don't know. They're not going to let any strangers come in because then it's going to be the whole mess, right? And at one point, my uh, one of my friends says, wait, Achi, you can pass for American. You can get them to open the door for us. And I was like, are you kidding me? And they were like, <laughs> no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Like affect an accent in your Spanish. And as a joke, I did it. And I was flabbergasted how quickly the door flew open and we were allowed to go in, use the bathroom, drink some water. It was, I mean, and this happened over and over and over and over again, where the the foreigner was sort of all important. I think the, the absolute height of that for me was um, my 
my girlfriend at the time was an artist. She had an assistant who had a Cuban boyfriend whom she lived with, but she depended on her Spanish boyfriend uh, for financial reasons and for, for maintenance of her entire family. And the Cuban boyfriend was totally in on this. And every time the Spanish guy came to Havana, the Cuban boyfriend would not only exit their mutual apartment, but the entire apartment was converted so that there was no sign of the Cuban boyfriend. So that the Spanish boyfriend could believe that she was just pining for him whenever he wasn't there. And this sort of uh, theater and pantomime and double lives, that was a, that was stunning to me because it takes a lot of emotional and psychological energy to pull that off. Cool, cool, cool. Stepping in here, I think now's a good time to cut in and let you know that Achi is going to read Heroes in Exile. Then immediately, she's going to first read that in English and then immediately... After, it'll be in Spanish. All right, check it out. Heroes in Exile. After the threats and the hunger strikes and the years in the cold, wet prison and the beatings after the headlines and the dramatic rescue or the negotiations for release by honorable or not-so-honorable delegates, after the reunion with family and those in solidarity and the media interviews and the stipend from the private foundation that's good for only a month or two, after the White House coffee with the subsecretary to the assistant to the advisor to the vice president of an international commission on human rights. Heroes in exile stand on the shoulders of a smaller atlas and ponder how their lives have taken such an erratic twist. They accept awards and write editorials, plot returns and fundraise, go to the doctor to check for long-term effects and disabilities, They meet with Olympians who gift them with medals and struggle to decipher prescriptions and insurance forms. Heroes in exile give speeches filled with Polonian precepts, promises or disappointments, admonishments or bitterness, and sometimes genuine hope. They wait for applause and for the car to get an oil change, read a newspaper, eat a bagel. Heroes in exile listen to their critics with compassion or envy or fear and reflect or take revenge or hide from shame in the cloakroom or kitchen, the back room packed with nostalgia and regret. Heroes in exile, Sinkatish, quote Lincoln and Mandela, Reagan and Havel, but especially Havel, the Havel's real exile, if generosity permits, came later, after the revolution and the presidency and the splitting in two of the country. Heroes in exile compose Aurorian letters they never write, but consider while lolling in the garden, tending yellow tulips and daffodils, fields and fields of daffodils. Héroes en el exilio. Después de las amenazas y las huelgas de hambre y los años en la cárcel, fría y mojada, y las palizas después de los titulares y el dramático rescate, o las negociaciones para la liberación por las honorables o no tan honorables delegadas después de la reunión con la familia y las solidarias, y las entrevistas con los medios y el estipendio de la fundación privada que solo dura un par de meses después del café en la Casa Blanca con la subsecretaria, al asistente, al asesore, 
del vicepresidente de una comisión internacional de derechos humanos, los héroes en el exilio separan en los hombros de una atlas más pequeña y reflexionan sobre cómo es que sus vidas han tomado un giro tan alucinado, aceptan premios y escriben editoriales, planifican regresos, recaudan fondos, van a la médica para verificar los efectos a largo plazo y las discapacidades, se encuentran con olímpicas que les regalan medallas y luchan por descifrar recetas médicas y planillas de seguro, los héroes en el exilio dan discursos llenos de preceptos polonias, promesas o decepciones, amonestaciones o amargura, y a veces genuina esperanza. Pausan para oírles aplausos y mientras le cambian el aceite a sus carros, leen un periódico, comen un bagel, héroes en el exilio escuchan a sus críticas con compasión o envidia o miedo y reflexionan o se vengan o se esconden por vergüenza en el vestuario, la cocina o el cuarto trasero llena de nostalgia y se lamentan. Los héroes en el exilio cantan Kaddish, citan a Lincoln y a Mandela, a Reagan y a Havel, pero especialmente a Havel, a pesar de que su verdadero exilio, si la generosidad lo permite, vino más tarde, después de la revolución y su presidencia, y la división en dos de su país, los héroes en el exilio componen cartas diafanes que nunca escriben, pero les contemplan mientras se recuestan en el jardín cuidando tulipanes y narcisos amarillos, campos y campos de narcisos. And there was something you said earlier about how your writing poems was just a, a thing you kind of did for yourself and a, and a practice you did for yourself and. So many writers, they put a lot of pressure on themselves, whether it be for essays or novels or memoirs, that everything has to be rowing in the same direction, that if every word has to somehow be a publishable quality. But it seems like for you, poetry early on, especially, was just something, like you said, you did for yourself. So how important might you, or how important is it for someone to maybe cultivate just a sense of play and practice where the words are just for them and that to take some of that pressure off feeling the need to constantly publish? Such a good question. But, you know, everybody's different. I mean, different people have different practices. For me, it just evolved because I realized, that, you know, writing poetry brought me, brought me joy. It brought me calm. It brought me tremendous satisfaction. And my dad used to kid that poetry was just one letter away from poverty. Um <laughs> <laughs> And so um, I, uh, I guess I never really thought about it like as a, a profession, a thing. And I was always amused, uh, especially, I mean, there are very few people in the U.S. who introduce themselves as, well, I'm a poet, because <laughs> almost nobody who's a poet makes a living from poetry. You know, it's a, it's, it's a very rare bird who does that. And so, but in Latin America, there, in, in Europe, There are people who make a living off being poets. And I'm always, I, I mean, I always wanted to giggle when I was introduced to somebody as, oh, el poeta, blah, 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 blah. And I would be like, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, because I couldn't quite fathom uh, what a poet did all day if they weren't um, also, you know, working for, I don't know, Netflix or teaching or being a dentist or something. Um right. And um, so that to me was, was 
was sort of stunning. But for me, it was just it it it, it because I've been writing poetry since I was a kid when publishing was not even within the realm of possibility. When publishing was such a a, a far fetched concept, you know, it got integrated into my practice in a way that was very organic and very personal. And you know, I mean, there were there was a period in my twenties when I when I sent some stuff out and some stuff got published. In fact, I mean, got published enough to get an NEA grant in poetry, which was another stunner. Um, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, my my check was signed by Ronald Reagan, who was the president then, and my father, who was a big Ronald Reagan fan, took more pictures of the check than he did of me receiving the check. <laughs> <laughs> He loved that my name and Ronald Reagan's name were on the same check. But, um, you know, I, I think because I was a kid that, and when I started doing it and developed the habit that it just became that way. And so I never felt any pressure about publishing for that. And for me, that was really good. I think the the one thing that I have felt pressure about publishing is novels. When I start a novel, mm-hmm. you know, those are such time consuming and emotionally you know, rattling kind of exercises that, you know, after you pour yourself into something for, you know, a year and a half, two years, it's really hard to let go and say, well, that's not working. Let's move on. <laughs> oh, know? yeah. You know? It's, it's mean, the worst. Yeah, because there are that you will spend so much time in the fact that you put all that time in, you feel like, well, I. I, because I invested all this time, I am owed some degree of some kind of reward for all this effort. And sometimes, Absolutely. and a lot of times it's just not the case. Your reward is, you know what, if it's not working, you, you get to start another one and you're better by one book, even if that book didn't get published. Exactly. Because you always learn, right? In the process, you always learn about stuff. You know, I have only really put away one novel and it was devastating. I actually had a, I remember I had like a week after I made the decision where I just kind of moped around. Uh, I was the distinguished visiting writer at Mills College then. And I had an office, you know, that said writer, but I kept, <laughs> I kept moping around and, and, and feeling not only very fake, but like telling people, I guess I'm just a college professor now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, which was so stupid because obviously it was, it was a learning experience and it was good for me to, to have done that and to have tried all those things that I tried in that book. And who knows? I mean, I'm not dead yet, so it may get a revival. I have friends who've, who've put things away and have gone back to it years later and with fresh eyes are able to sort of dig the nugget out of the morass. Um, So who knows? I'm not, I mean, I didn't like delete forever. Uh, it's, you know, in my deep, dark file of, you know, stuff not going anywhere. <laughs> right. Um, these these things never truly die. You know, that's that's a big reason. A digital drawer or a physical drawer. You can just put yeah. it in there and you know what? You're going to keep developing and maturing around this little time capsule of a thing. And like you said, there might be some nugget in the morass or or just a way you can imbue new experience on it, or you can just throw it in the incinerator and move on. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? You know, I read somewhere that uh, Nelson Algren, um, whenever stuff didn't work, he'd crumble it up and he'd put it in the top drawer of his desk. And then when he was stuck, he would just reach in there and pull something out 
And, you know, sometimes it made its way into the new thing. Sometimes it just kicked him into thinking about something in a different way. And sometimes it didn't work at all. But he had like hundreds of pieces of paper, torn pieces of paper all crumbled up in this top drawer just for that moment. And they were all from things that did not work. Now, you're a writer and editor for Netflix and oh. and also a professional writer. So uh, maybe you can, for one, kind of describe your role at Netflix, because that, that struck me as I'm like, I didn't realize that there were writers and editors there. Like, I'm sure there's a, a certain content wing where that matters. And I, I'm just curious about that. Um, but also because you, that that is a job and then also your art are kind of tethered together because they're words. You know, how you <laughs> have a firewall between the two and don't get burned out when you want to do, you know, your poetry or your novels. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, it's I, what I do is I write and I edit uh, synopsis. When you click open uh, Netflix and you see a little description of whatever it is that you might or might not watch. Um, that's something that somebody at Netflix wrote. And there's a very specific way to approach these things. And there are very many different ways of doing, you know, we have synopsis that are only 150 characters. We have synopsis that are 500 characters. Um, we have synopsis that focus on, you know, prizes won by this particular director or, you know, so we do all of that, and I and I mostly work on Latin American titles. I, mm -hmm. I do a lot of other stuff, but I mostly work on Latin American titles. The beauty of working with Netflix is that the work is short. I'm not involved in it. Like when I worked at the Chicago Tribune as a reporter, you know, sometimes you're working on a story for three months, and that's why you think about it, and that gets very much in the way of everything else you're trying to write because you're still thinking about the story. You're you know, you owe the Tribune. The only time that really happens with Netflix is when you have a telenovela. And those have a weird way of worming into your brain. And you find yourself thinking about these characters as if they're relatives or something. Hmm. Um, but um, like right now I'm watching one that's 91 episodes. And uh, I I find myself talking like my mom used to talk about her telenovelas. I never watched a telenovela in my life until I started working for, for Netflix. So that's been sort of funny. The truly great thing about working at Netflix is that every single person I work with is absolutely brilliant. These are some of the best writers I've ever, ever worked with or ever met. And I mean, that far exceeds the, I mean, they're, they're just, I mean, I've worked places with great writers like the Tribune and the Chicago Reader and you know, uh, writing departments at very many different universities, University of Chicago and, you know, Northwestern, Mills, et cetera. But these people are really amazing and they're all slightly wacky and they all have their own thing going outside of Netflix. Like nobody's at Netflix for Netflix, except maybe, you know, the managers, um, you know, they're interested, they're in there, but they're also, you know, writing scripts and, novels and other stuff on the side. And that's really, to me, that's exciting because there's a real creative energy going on all the time. There's, I several years ago uh, when, when I was, uh, I, I believe I was, I was actually binging the first four seasons of Breaking Bad. 
uh, on Netflix. So we're talking like probably 2012, <laughs> 2011, 2012 when, when it uh, went on to Netflix. And I uh, just, I remember at that time I was taking note of these synopses that were written and as a way to sum up, we're often told about like elevator pitches for books. And if you, if you have like 10 <laughs> seconds to sell your book, how are you going to do it? And right. it's like, I started reading those. I'm like, these are great one sentence, two sentence pitches for what the entire series is about. And it's like, it's really a great exercise in distilling it. If you do really only have 15 seconds of an agent's time or a publisher's time, like right. this is what it's about. It, it is like, those things are so valuable, really. It's a great Absolutely. exercise. Yeah, no, it is a great exercise. And it really makes you, you know, it, it makes your brain work in a very different way. I mean, um, it's, I, I find that after a day of, you know, killing it with synopsis, when, when I go back to my own work, I'm like hacking through it. Everything hmm. becomes much more compact. Oh, I don't need that, that, don't need that there. Don't need, you know, um, and, and that's not a bad thing at all. Um, I actually think that that's very helpful, but you know, there are all sorts of things we do that, that, uh, you know, we don't necessarily think at the time that. Um, it has an effect on our writing, but it does. You know, I, I, I was translating from the time I was a kid because my parents didn't speak English. I never thought of what I was doing as translation. And yet I was, I was playing with, with words and, you know, trying to find the more appropriate one. And I find that now that I do translation, I mean, what that has taught me is to be an incredibly close reader um, and I'm not sure that I would be as close a reader if I weren't translating because I, I don't, most of us don't consider every word when we're reading. That's not how it works. Our brains put together this assemblage of words and comes up with meaning. But in translation, you have to consider every word, whether you translate it or not, you have to consider it. And so you become a, a very, very close reader. And I think that, you know, things like that are, are, are really interesting. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think everything sort of feeds what we do, you know. Oh, for sure. And, you know, given that you're that, that you're a translator, you know, in an age where you can cut and paste a lot of things into Google Translate, <laughs> <laughs> you know, how, how have you seen your role as, as in the art of translation? You know, how has that changed and how is your relation to it? you know, change given that a lot of people can just take the easy out of Google. Yeah. You know, I mean, Google is, is, is not bad at all for, you know, like it, it you know, just kind of getting along, you know I mean? Mm -hmm. it, uh, especially since they added the AI component where Google translates actually learns um, it's um, it's actually not a, a bad place. If all you really need is function but it sucks when it comes to creativity because it yeah. doesn't understand lexicon, you know, and so it will translate something from English into Spanish with a, an English construction. Um, and it, the words may be correct, but it sounds weird. Hmm. Um, it would be as if I suddenly started talking to you and like, instead of using the English possessive was suddenly talking about, you know, the hat of Donald, as if that right. were the normal way of referring to Donald's hat, um, you know, and so it, it's, uh, it doesn't work. Uh, you always need, I think you always need a human being for literary translation, because you need 
creativity, you need someone who has a voice and who can capture the voice of the original writer. You know, you need somebody to sort of examine that and figure out what's their swing, what's their what's their their thing, you know, how is it that they do what they do? What do they sound like in this other language? If they were if they had been born talking this other language, what would they sound like? You know, um when I translated Juno Diaz, it was tremendous fun because um you know, he's got this incredible groove in the way he writes English. So it it was it, it was just screaming in your face, you know, do this in this other way. But when you translate somebody who's more subtle, like Wendy Guerra, you know, you have to find her voice, uh, you know, in, in more nuanced ways. That to me has been a, a real interesting experience too, to inhabit these other voices. Now with the, uh, with Boomerang, why was it important uh, for you to have the, you know, the, to have the boomerang symbolized in the entire construction of the book, whether it's going out in English and coming back in Spanish or, or vice versa. Well, I think it, I mean, for me, it was a lot of things. One, because I go back and forth from Cuba. Uh, one, because, or two, because um, I think the public and private kind of go back and forth and, and, you know, there's this sort of eternal, you know, just kind of bouncing off and coming back and bouncing off and coming back and, I, for one, feel like I return a lot to different times and different points in my life and sort of reconsider, rethink, reappraise. I, I don't necessarily, you know, know or think anybody else, you know, does that in the same way, but I do. I, I do a lot of that. I, I think now, especially that I have kids, the, the I, I've had to rethink a lot of things. You know, like my parents, for example, were very, very lax about religion you know they did their thing they each had their own thing they did and it was very cool um but i really had to sort of think well how am i going to do it am i going to be really relaxed and you know mm-hmm. really cool about this or am i going to force my kids into sunday school and i realized yeah i'm going to be that parent who's going to force my kid into sunday school part of it was because i had experiences my parents didn't which was uh being out in the world and um, I remember in college, I, I worked for a, a bakery that was actually run by a cult. I wasn't in the cult, uh, <laughs> but the, it was a local ashram. And they actually had to hire people outside the cult in order to not be breaking the law. And also, they didn't have enough cult members to run this incredibly successful business. And one of the things that struck me about all my coworkers is that they all came from really relaxed, you know, uh, religious families. And one of the things that the cult offered them was something to hold on to. So I realized I would prefer if my kids had something to hold on to and rebel against than to have nothing and fall through the black hole of, you know, uh, this kind of very restrict restrictive and, you know, very black and white situation. So, and I mean, and, and also, I think there's a there's a lot of beauty and the values of Judaism, which is what I practice. I like the idea that again that that my kids have some sense of citizenship in the world and responsibility to that world. And but I 
I really had to think about it consciously in a way that I don't know that my parents did. You know, I know my parents made other very conscious decisions. Like my parents decided that we would speak in Spanish at home because they did not want us to lose English. And that's not a decision I made, but I wish I had been able to keep it up. But now, having made a slight attempt at it at one point, I understand how hard it was for my parents and uh, what an incredible gift they gave us to to let us grow up bilingual. You know, it, but they had that experience of exile also that was very urgent for them and this possibility that we might go back and they wanted us to be able to function in Cuba. It never crosses my mind that Ilan and Pablo are going to need to function in Cuba or anywhere else other than uh, this country. And if and if in fact they do function somewhere else, it'll be someplace of their choice, I hope, and not uh, a, a question of, of exile and, and being forced into or out of someplace. Um, they'll learn languages, but they might not learn necessarily Spanish. You know, they, they will... I hope have an interest in the world, um, but it may not. The focus may not be Cuba, and that's okay. That's they're they're not me, and they're not my parents. So, I love see. how a, a lot of the the poems they uh, you know there there are some that have a lot of that like, that have an edge to them, but there are also ones that are like very tender, like you're dancing in the paradise in, in paradise one. It just feels very warm and tender, and uh, you know how. You know, as uh, as we kind of wind down our conversation here, Achi, I just wanted to get a sense of you know how important it was for you to balance some of that tonality throughout this collection. Oh, it was it was hugely important. I mean, there's a there's a music to this, you know, like you 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 have it's like, this is like putting together an album, you know, you you right. have songs and then you have the overall sound. You you have uh, and you know a concert to put on with these different songs and you have to find the rise and the fall and the, the moment of tension and the moment of tension release and all those things. I mean, it's, it, you, I, I think, and I hope that people, um, you know, approach this book however they need, you know, that is if they just want to open it and, and read a piece here and there, that's fine too. But if anybody chooses to sit down and read it all the way through I think that they'll also find that there's something there that's different than reading it so in a, such a scattered way, right? And I think that there's something beyond the individual pieces as well. Final aside, I kind of like these. I kind of like cutting in here and there. It kind of breaks things up. i got to think about how to work that in more, but it is more work. I don't know. Final aside, nevertheless, in terms of poems that are more tender, I really loved Dancing in Paradise. Again, Archie is reading English and then in Spanish. Enjoy. Dancing in Paradise. You lean against me as we dance, a soft huddle of our heads together. Our breaths clean steam in the blue smoke, rapid, exhausted. We mix margaritas because I like the name, a woman you love. You're older. I'm willing, drunk, unbuttoned. You lead. Peeling layer after wet layer, a heap of sweaters, shirts, and precious metals. Your breast is slick with sweat, hands agile, eels and glass waters. When you scoop me up, I twist in your lap, a thick needle thrust through my tongue. Later, 
You give me a reading list, blank journals, your mother's recipes. You take what you need, knowing there's no autonomy of the senses, those five carnivores in their own essential food chain. What survives is memory, twin jewels, the blade of a pelvic bone. Instinctively, we keep our eyes open, ears keen for marine smells, salt, the plexus of light, sound, water. Bailando en el paraíso. Te apoyas en mí mientras bailamos. Le suave roce de nuestras cabezas juntes. Nuestros alientos une vapor limpie en le humo azul, rápide, agotade. Mezclamos margaritas porque me gusta el nombre. Es la mujer que amas. Tú eres mayor y yo estoy dispuesta, borracha, desabrochada. Me guías quitándonos capa mojade tras capa mojade, un montón de suéteres, camisas y metales preciosos. Tus senos están resbaladices por el sudor, manos ágiles, anguilas en aguas cristalines. Cuando me acurrucas, me giro en tu regazo y una gruesa aguja atraviesa mi lengua. Luego me das una lista de lecturas, diarios en blanque, recetas de tu mamá. Te llevas lo que necesitas, sabiendo que no hay autonomía de los sentidos. Esos cinques carnivores en su propia cadena trófica y esencial. Le que sobrevive es memoria, joyas gemeles, le filo del hueso pélvique. Instintivamente, mantenemos los ojos abiertos, oídos alertes, para los olores marines, sal, le plexo de luz, sonido, agua. Excellent. And, and Archie, where can uh, people uh, find you online and get more familiar with your work? Um, they can find me online at my website, um, achiobejas.com. That's A as in apple, C as in cat, H as in Henry, Y as in Yankee, O, B as in boy, E as in Eric, J as in Jack, A as in apple, S as in Sam, dot com. Um, and there are tons of interviews and uh reviews and articles I've written and uh, all kinds of stuff, upcoming events. This will be on there eventually. Uh, <laughs> Beautiful. So, uh, um, yeah, that's the best place. Fantastic. Well, the, the, oh, of course, this is, this is great fun getting to just kind of talk shop and pick your brain about this, you know, this wonderful collection and the, and the creative way you went about putting it together. It's kind of a, it's very singular in that way. And it is definitely you know, wonderful to immerse yourself in. And then, of course, get to hear you read read uh, those poems in English and Spanish. So it was a wonderful experience. And I, uh, I deeply appreciate you coming on the show, Achi. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, that was great. Had a good time there. It was really nice for her to read those poems. And, uh, the Spanish ones. Oh, my God. I mean, even if you, I like, I, I don't understand, but it just sounds so beautiful. It really does. Amazing. I uh, hope you had a good time. Thank you to West Virginia Wesleyan College's MFA in Creative Writing for the support and also the, the, the patrons who helped make the show possible. Yes, the show is partly made possible by the incredible cohort of members, patreon.com slash cnfpod, new and old, building up those Patreon coffers grants you access to transcripts and audio magazine and coaching. 
I, I I'm debating whether to turn the audio magazine more loose on the general public just because I don't know if that might get more people interested in the the whole enterprise. You know, the first issue, let's just say it went out to roughly a thousand people. And then the last one went out to like 13 because that's the that was the Patreon audience at the time of that publication. Like that's a big difference, right? Um, so I don't know. I, I might reach out to the Patreon people and be like, listen, if I just kind of retool those tiers, would you be okay with that? Because um, that matters to me. Uh, so in any case... Uh, building up those coffers helps pay for the podcast hosting, hosting, which is several hundred dollars a year to make the backlog available for all time. And um, your dollars go into the pockets of writers. Like I say, that fat burrito money. Uh, so visit patreon.com slash CNFpod. Shop around. Help support the community. That's what you're doing. And and like I said, for, uh, for the little guy, and that's me, and it's a lot, a lot of you out there too. Uh, reviews make the world go around. If you can spare a moment and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a kind review for the show, I'll read it on the air. I always do that. They mean everything to the wayward CNFer. I, me personally, I don't have any real name recognition. Let's be honest. I'm not. Yeah, let's just leave it at that. But if people see more and more of those reviews they have to take notice and they might just join our little community and then they might become patrons and I can pay writers more and maybe even make some of that, a little of that, uh, that, uh, vegetarian burrito bowl, chipotle money for my, myself and, uh, and, and get a, get some guacamole on there. Yeah. And I just might be able to get that guac and a Corona. Anyway, I don't have much to say today. I thought I did, but then I for, then I just forgot, and I, so I'm just gonna leave. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a little bit of food after I'm done packaging this, because then I gotta put all this crap together, and I'm gonna have some wine. Actually, I'll probably be done with the wine by the time I hit stop on this. I don't even know anymore, bro. So just stay wild, CNFers, and if you can do interview, see ya. <laughs> <laughs>